All right, the rest of you can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> we'll finish up this chapter today. If you were here last week or if you watched online, we stopped about halfway through chapter 2 last week, so we're really just picking up where we left off. This is kind of the second part of what we looked at last week. And last week, we looked at the destiny of man. If you were with us, God's original intention was for man to rule this earth. God gave dominion of everything to mankind. We went to Scripture and looked at that. But something happened. Sin entered the world. And so Satan usurped the crown from man, the crown that belonged to man. And so now angels rule this world, particularly Satan and uh, his demonic angels. Satan's called the God of this age. Jesus called Satan, the ruler of this world, and so uh, angels rule this world. Man fell. He fell in in sin, but also fell in rank, and so man uh, is now subject to creation. Something else happened when that happened, that is death entered the world. Death entered the world through sin. There was no death or decay or disease or sickness or any such thing before sin. Death entered the world at that time, and so now every human being on the planet dies, That is just a fact of life. And the reason that happens is because God cursed the creation. He cursed the world. That's the result of that. And that's because of sin. And death, we know, is the payment for sin. So every person on the planet, man, woman, and children included, are sinners. And we all deserve to pay the penalty for sin, which is death. And if you remember right at the end of our passage last week, someone entered the scene right at the end in verse 9. And I just want to draw your attention uh, there real quick. Verse 9 said, but we see Jesus. So grateful those words were placed right there, but we see Jesus. Why does the author suddenly insert Jesus there? What does Jesus have to do with our destiny? Well, it kind of tells us there, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So, since the, the world was, was given to man to rule over and not to angels, Jesus came to help man. He came to help man. He came to help not angels, but mankind. And Jesus could only help man if he became man. He was made a little lower than the angels. He had to become one of us. Why? So that he could taste death for everyone. That's what it says. Now, I briefly explained the why of all this last week at the closing, but really the rest of this chapter is all about the why. Why did Jesus do that? You say, well, it was to recover man's destiny. Yes, yes, but but why did he have to come and, and suffer? Because it says that he he tasted death for everyone, that he was, it was for the suffering of, of death. And the answer comes to us marvelously in our passage today because we're told he is the captain of our salvation. Now, that word is in verse 10. And I just want to draw your attention to it really quickly here. Read verse 10 with me. It says, But it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. There's that word, captain. I don't know if you ever thought about Jesus as your captain, but Scripture does. He's the captain of our salvation. The word there is archegos, means the chief leader, 
or the predecessor or uh, the pioneer or even the, the author. Later on in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, actually we'll look at that obviously down the road, that same word is used and there it is famously translated as author where we're told to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This word is also twice used in the book of Acts, in Acts 3.15 and 5.31. In both times there, it is rendered prince. Archeos is prince. So many words have been used. Your Bible might say leader. It might say originator. It might say author. It might say champion. It might even say hero. I've seen in some translations. The New King James Version that I have before me renders the captain captain. And I think it's perfectly fitting as we're going to see. He is the captain of our salvation. So that's the title of the sermon today. So let's read about our captain. We're going to start in verse 10 and go all the way through the end of the chapter. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He himself, likewise, shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren." that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we have a mighty passage before us today, a marvelous passage passage about our great captain of our salvation. Lord, we need your spirit with us today to guide us into this wonderful truth. Lord, help us to see the greatness of our Savior today, Lord. Reveal these truths to us. Open up our hearts to receive them, Lord, that we might live lives that would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is our our captain here, and we're looking here at the beginning in verse 10. And I just want to read that again. It says, It was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Sufferings. Now, Jesus is many things, and, and we have started this book looking at Jesus. We've looked at him very high and exalted. He is our creator. He's our sustainer. He, 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 is, he is the one that inherits everything. But now we bring it down to the things that really just apply to his people, to the church. And this is where this starts, right here. Because remember, this letter is written to encourage a suffering church. And what I want you to see first and foremost right here is that Jesus is our sufferer. Our sufferer. You and I, we do suffer in this world, but we do not have to suffer 
under the wrath of God. Jesus is our ultimate sufferer. Now, now if you continue the thought, think back that this is really continuing the thought from the previous section. The author quoted Psalm 8 there. Remember Psalm 8, he was talking about man. Remember, he used the Hebrew parallelism, man and son of man, to talk about man and and the fact that all things were were put in subjection under man's feet. Man was given dominion over everything. But now as we look at it and we look at reality, we we don't see that today. So we don't see things put, put under him. Why? Because sin has created a dilemma. That's why. Man had a destiny which God had decreed, and yet sin altered that destiny. So how does a God who is, is holy, how does he judge sin and judge it rightly, yet also fulfill his promises? If mankind has blown it and they're in sin, how does he do that? And the answer was the cross. Notice in verse 10, it says, It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Who is this talking about? Now, this is speaking of God the Father. God the Father is the one for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Even Jesus, when he says everything will be subject to him, he will then take it in turn and give it all to back to the Father. The Father is the one who is, everything is going back to him. And it's fitting. It's fitting. What that means is it's consistent with God's character. It was consistent with his wisdom to find a way out of this dilemma, a way in which he might bring many sons to glory, we're told to find a way to recover man's destiny. And he did it by making, and here it says it, the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus suffered on the cross. And you guys, it was a masterpiece of God's wisdom, an absolute masterpiece. He solved the greatest dilemma through one stroke of genius. Mankind comes up with all kinds of plans to get to heaven, all kinds of way to save himself. There's no way that any man on the planet would come up with this way. Only God, only in the masterful mind of God. By sending his son to die, God retained his holiness. He retained his his justice. He didn't look the other way about sin. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He remains righteous because he punished sin. At the same time, he showed his love for the world because he provided a way for man to have their destiny recovered because he paid the penalty himself. This is the supreme demonstration of the grace of God. Remember back in verse 9, we're told that he... Jesus, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So what this did is it made Jesus the, then, then the captain of our salvation. You could say he's the, the champion of our cause. He's the, uh, the, the pioneer who blazed the trail of salvation. God has given us a divine hero in Christ. Now, this even goes back to the Old Testament. You think about um, Isaiah 9.6. Look at this verse here real quick. We're very familiar with it. We usually read it at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is about Christ. This is about the incarnation, the child that was born, and all the names that he would be called. Well, that name, Mighty God, there is El Gibor, and it means the champion or hero. He is the hero of our faith. That's Jesus. And so because God sent the hero, the captain, the sons of God can now be brought to glory because Jesus has paved the way. But you might have noticed a little confusing bit at the end of verse 10. And this is where this really all gets fleshed out. You look at the end of verse 10, and it says, to make the captain of their salvation perfect. 
through sufferings. Now, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus perfect? He is. So how did Jesus need to be made perfect? Can that which is perfect be made more perfect? Is there a perfecter? (laughs) See, his being made perfect through suffering is in reference to this role. It is in reference to his being made a perfect captain of our salvation. That's how it's being used here, meaning he was perfectly equipped to do the job. His perfection was rooted in his experience as a man, his, his incarnation. Scripture actually tells us, if you, if you look at some places, I'll take you there today, that Christ actually underwent a series of, you want to call them perfections, through his suffering. He was made perfect in several areas. One of them is in obedience. We'll get to it later, but I just want to highlight this. And it's Hebrews, Hebrews 5. Look at Hebrews 5, verses 8 to 9. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, notice again, their author is used there in that passage. And we'll divvy that up when we get there. But it's a different Greek word there that means the cause. He's the cause. He's the originator of eternal salvation because he lived for us the perfect pattern of obedience. Now, keep this in mind. Was Jesus obedient? before he became a man. Well, yes. In fact, that's, that's why he came. If Jesus wasn't obedient, he wouldn't have come at all, folks. Jesus, his coming to earth shows that he was already obedient. In fact, Jesus, when he was walking this earth, he repeatedly used this, this phrase, I do not seek my own, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus was here because it was the will of the Father Jesus' role was to, to maintain obedience to him. In fact, you think about the night of his crucifixion. In John 17, verse 4, he said this, I have glorified you on the earth. He's talking to his father. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Do you see that? He was doing the work of the father. Jesus was already obedient, but he became perfect or complete. You could say it that way as our suitable captain of salvation, by experiencing obedience as a man, living the perfect pattern of obedience for us. Does that make sense? So so he's already perfect, but he had to become a man and then be that perfect example for us. That made him a perfect captain. He's he's also perfected through temptation. Temptation is another area that we see that in. It's also found in Hebrews 4.15. You might remember uh, Jesus suffered temptation, a particular passage in Matthew 4 that we see where Satan tempted him. But it's not just there. That's not the only time Jesus suffered temptation. Folks, he was a man. He suffered all the normal temptations, yet he resisted it perfectly. And in Hebrews 4.15, we're told this, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. Yet what? Without sin. You see it? He did it perfectly. So he's a perfect captain because he was able to perfectly obey, uh, perfectly resist temptation. He knows how painful it is to resist temptation, and so he can identify with our weaknesses. Aren't you glad about that? And so you've got to see here, suffering, the suffering itself is what made him the perfect captain. He suffered through obedience. He suffered through temptation. And here we're told that he suffered. He's suffering as a man is what set him as the perfect pattern for suffering. The suffering made him a perfect captain because, well, before he could lead us to salvation, he had to suffer because, boy, brothers, you and I, we're, we have to suffer. 
We're, we're told that we're going to suffer if we're going to follow Christ. In 1 Peter 2, 21, it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Jesus was our example. And what is that example? It's in the next couple of verses in that passage. I just want to show it to you here. Look at how he suffered for us. 1 Peter 2, 22 to 24. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. That's hard. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Amazing. You see, Jesus suffered, yet he did it perfectly. Reviled on that cross. Brothers, if it were me, I, I, would, be, I would be reviling back. <laughs> Jesus did not, but he what? Submitted himself to him who judges righteously. So there's no other suitable person to lead us to salvation. This is what he's getting at. Only Christ came and obeyed perfectly. Only Christ resisted temptation perfectly. Only Christ suffered perfectly. Can I tell you? Not Muhammad, uh, not Buddha, not Joseph Smith. So I don't care what kind of uh, prophet or person they were. None of them did that for you. And that is why, folks, Christ is the perfect captain of your salvation. He was our perfect sufferer. But he is also our sanctifier. Look at verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So he's our sanctifier. Notice both parties are mentioned. He who sanctifies, well, that's Jesus who does that. He's the one that makes us holy. And those who are being sanctified, that's that's us. Now, let me explain what this is, this is talking about. We would talk about sanctification. I don't always know that everyone understands what we're talking about. We're talking about really a couple of things. We're talking about being made holy, and the position you and I are in right now is that of holy. Mark kind of talked about that. We do sin. We do get into the flesh, but did you, did you know that your position isn't sin? Your position is holy, meaning Christ, God, you are seen as holy. You are seen as holy in your position. Now, practically speaking, we're not perfect. We're not holy. We don't walk around going, watch out, holy coming through, part the way. But our position is that of holy. Why? You have been sanctified. Now, sanctification is also a process because while that position is true, I'm also being made practically holy. Each year, I'm hoping by the grace of God, that it look a little bit more like Christ. And some of you might come up and go, well, Kevin, I was going to tell you about that. You got, you got a long way to go. Because last year you were here, and now you know, you're back here. But don't you, you want that each year? You want, I just want to look a little bit more like Jesus. That's the practical part. But what we're talking about here, when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about your position is that of holy. Hebrews 10.10, another Hebrews verse for you, says this, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the sanctification happened in one sense because Jesus sacrificed himself once for all. It's one sacrifice for all that places us in that position of righteousness. Now get this, you never lose that. You never lose that position of righteousness. Maybe some of you feel sometimes, I don't know. I, I don't know if to, no, no. If you were placed there, you don't lose it. 
And I can tell you from a few verses later, Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he has perfected, what? Forever those who are being sanctified. You are perfected forever, but also being sanctified. Both those things are used there. Amazing. You're perfected forever. That's your position. You never lose it. But you're also being sanctified. We're being made holy. We're being made to look like Christ. It's incredible. And all of that happens because of the great substitutionary atonement on the cross. The great substitutionary atonement versus 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So my sin went upon uh, Christ on the cross, and his righteousness came upon me. And so when God looks upon me, he sees the righteousness of his son. That's why I can be seen as holy. Now, track this. Because that has happened, this is where he's going with this. Looking back in our verse, we are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus does not mind at all calling you brothers and sisters. You do not mind at all to call you brethren. Why? We are all of one. The word literally means all of one source. What's the source? The Father. We're all of one family, the sanctifier and the sanctified, Jesus Christ and his church. Why? Because his righteousness is ours. You tracking that? So this is what makes us part of his family. Listen, you can join a family today one of two ways. You could be born into one or you could be adopted into one, right? Well, listen, to join the family of God, you need to be born there too, but it's a reborn. But scripture also uses the terminology of adopted. We're adopted, so both terms are even used there. Christ, uh, uh, through his blood, we, uh, allows us to be adopted into the family of God. Now we're all of, all of one. Now, that is the only way, folks. That is the only way to God, the only way to heaven. Now, I know we, we say it in a lot simpler terms, and we did that even yesterday when we talked about sharing the gospel. We don't get this deep with people because their brains would explode, right? We just do little things. Jesus died for you. He loves you. But the truth of the matter is is that because Jesus died for us, now I have his righteousness. It's been imputed into my account. It's a banking term. And so now my account is that of a righteous account, and I can stand before God the Father completely clean. It's amazing. And so I'm part of his family. Now, in our passage here, here's where our author loves to add in support, and he does it from the Old Testament, doesn't he? So here's where he adds the Old Testament support to these truths. Uh, what's amazing about this here, when you think about this too, is that Jesus never, never called his, his people brothers. Here he does in verse 11. He never did it before the cross. Did you know that? Go ahead and look it up. Go and see if you can find it. He doesn't do it. He actually never calls any of his people brothers until after the cross. The first time he does it is when he meets Mary after the resurrection. He says, go to my brethren. Isn't that amazing? Why? Why then? Well, because now they have the righteousness of Christ. It's after the cross. That is the moment of the transaction. So it's amazing. So, but here, anyway, we have some Old Testament verses to, to, to support this. Look at verse 12. So he says, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. All right. So this is a quote from Psalm 22. Now, most of you right away went, oh, Psalm 22. I know what that is. It's a messianic psalm. The entire passage is a psalm about Jesus Christ, but it's way back, hundreds of years before, in Psalm 22. Now, I need to take you there, so keep your place in Hebrews. We'll come back to it, but go to Psalm 22. You need to see this. This is absolutely stunning. Psalm 22, 
as you're turning there, is all about the crucifixion of Christ. Prophesied about the suffering that he would endure, the manner in which he would die, all of that happens in Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, at the very beginning, verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you heard that before? Jesus said those words on the cross right before he died. So we know this is about the cross. You skip ahead to kind of verses 6 uh, through, through 8, and we see that there, there are people who are ridiculing me, he says. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's all about the mocking from the crowd, the reviling when he was reviled but didn't revile back. That's all about that while he was on the cross. You skip ahead to verses 14 to, to 15. Here's some of the agonies on the cross. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is drifted up, uh, dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. That's all about the agonies he's enduring there. And then you get to the actual crucifixion described in verse 16. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Jesus never had a broken bone. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Did not all that happen? Does not the gospel record all those things about Jesus? Absolutely. It's all about Jesus. Okay, okay, so why are we looking at this? When do we get to the verse that is quoted in our passage? It's verse 22. Verse 22 is at another moment. It's after all the suffering. Verse 22 comes to us after the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. Look what it says. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. This is amazing. Incredible. Jesus says here, I will declare your name, God the Father's name, to my brethren. When did that happen? After the cross. After the cross. Jesus has been exalted. He is victorious. And guess what? We get to share in that exaltation. But God's name is declared to us. Now listen, you can know something about God, can't you, by looking at creation? Romans tells us that, right? You can see the creation and we, you can know some things about God. Well, he's pretty mighty. He made all that. We can also know quite a bit about God when we read his word. But where do we get the most that we know about God? It's through Christ. Christ said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you, but I'm going to send a helper to do that. I'm going to send someone to do that. We, we know what we know about God ultimately the, the fullness of what we can know about God, the truly seeing the character of God, because when we have Christ, we have him in us. We can see him. We are all of one. We're part of the family. And Psalm 22 prophesies that I'm going to declare your name to my brethren, to my own family. And he does that to his church. It's amazing. We share so much with Christ. It's incredible. But you know what? He says something more in there. Did you notice it? It's actually quoted back in our passage in Hebrews as well. In Hebrews, uh, it says, In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Did you know that? (laughs) Jesus joins in the singing of praises to the Father. You ever thought about that? In the midst of praise, oh, in the midst of the assembly, I'm going to sing praise to you. Christ calls us brethren, and then he worships with us. It's incredible. Well, of course he does. Why? Because we've been united with him, folks. He, he participates in those things that we participate in. Listen to how John Calvin talks about that truth. He says, This teaching is the very strongest encouragement to us to bring yet more fervent zeal to the praise of God. 
when we hear that Christ leads our praise and is the chief conductor of our hymns. You think about it that way. In the midst of the assembly, when we're assembled together, boy, I'm singing praises with you. Why? We're brothers. We're his brethren. It's incredible. We share so much with Christ. We share even, get this, even faith. Now, some of you might be going, hold on a second. We share faith with Jesus? We do. We do. Jesus also was perfected, we're told, through the obedience of faith. Now, we have another Old Testament quote here, but this comes from someplace else. We'll look at it. It's in verse 13. And again, he says, I will put my trust in him, my faith in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now, this comes from Isaiah chapter 8. Now, the same cool thing is happening here. You have, think about Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 is about prophesying uh, of the birth of Christ as well, where we hear that famous, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. That all comes from Isaiah 7. Isaiah 9, we just looked at. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 8, sandwiched in between those two chapters, is also full of messianic prophecy. And here is a, just a piece of it that we're given here, Isaiah 8, 17. Look at it. And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him, or I will put my trust in him. It's the same uh, rendering there. So I will, I, will, I will trust in him. Now, Isaiah writing this didn't know that he was writing necessarily about Christ, just like he didn't know about, you know, uh, Psalm 22 didn't know. Oh, I didn't know that was all about Christ. We just see these things fulfilled. Isaiah, the prophecy was sealed up. His words were hidden. And so he says, well, I'm just gonna have to wait on the Lord. I'm just gonna have to trust in him. Here, the author applies this to Christ. Christ had to trust the father. Did he have to do that? Absolutely, he had to trust the father. I'm gonna be made a man. I'm gonna go to earth. I'm gonna relinquish my 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 power, basically, to the will of the Father. Jesus used his power when the Father willed it. He didn't just use it at, at a whim. When the God said, yep, now you can use the power, Jesus used it. That's how that works. It's a whole other study, Philippians 2. But the, that's the idea. He had to trust the Father. But we're also told here in the second part of that, um, that here am I and the children whom God has given me, that, that, that Christ would have children or brothers, family, this comes from the very next verse, Isaiah 8, 18. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And again, Isaiah wrote this with just his own children in mind, his own kids. He said, here, we're just going to trust in you, Lord, me and my kids. Now, this is the same, but it's applied to Christ. Christ had to trust the Father. And Luke records the last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the last words of Christ. I commit my, into your hands. I'm trusting you father, right? About the point of death, Jesus is hanging on the cross. I'm going to commit all this to you. I'm about to die. I commit my spirit to you, father. The father had it well in hand. And while on earth, Jesus had to place full faith and trust in every single way. This Old Testament passage, it just reveals that, that it was prophesied about to us. But not only would Jesus have to place his trust in the father, but the next verse that we just looked at shows us that his brothers would have to do the same. Me and my family. Who is that? That is you. That is me. That's the family. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. That should encourage you. That is meant to encourage the saints that the author is writing to. 
Jesus is our sufferer, yes, but he's our sanctifier to the point where he's going to say, and here are my children, we're both trusting in the Father. Isn't it an encouragement to know? I mean, we are told, oh, we've got to walk by faith. We've got to trust in God. We've got to be totally dependent upon God that when you're doing that, you're walking in the footsteps of Christ. He did the same thing. I think we sometimes go, well, no, he was just God. He was always walking around. And he knew everything. He did. Listen, folks, he was a man and he suffered. He even, you know, he was, he was tempted to the point of bleeding, sweating. God, take this cup from me. He wanted to in the flesh. He knew the suffering that he was about to endure. So our Savior walked through those things. It's, it's, it's then easier to walk by faith because we know we're just following Christ, our captain of our salvation. He's blazed the trail. We're just walking in the steps behind him. So he's our sufferer. He's our sanctifier. Oh, and here's a good one. He's our Satan conqueror. Mm. Look at verse 14. Inasmuch then... As the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, and that is the devil. Now here it says, we children have partaken of flesh and blood. Now that word partaken is the word koinonia. Many of you know that word. It's where we get uh, fellowship uh, from. We have koinonia, fellowship with one another, uh, something in common. That's what we have together. What is he saying? Well, all human beings, we have flesh and blood in common. That's what makes us humans. We, we share that. But Jesus, on the other hand, he is not naturally flesh and blood. He's not naturally human. He had to, what does it say? Share in the same. Now, that word is metecho. It is not the same word as koinonia. It's to take part in. It is to participate in. In fact, the better word would be partake there. He had to partake of that, meaning Jesus had to go and take hold of that which was not natural for him. Become a man. Take on flesh and blood. Likewise, he had to share in that. Why? That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. To conquer Satan, Jesus had to conquer Satan's greatest weapon, death, which is physical, spiritual, uh, eternal. It's, it's all of that. He had to conquer that. And listen, guys, Satan understands God's standard of righteousness. He understands he's a holy God. He knows that he requires death as the payment for sin. And so Satan, what he's trying to do, he's trying to hold on to men until they die. If he can hold on to them and their souls until they die, that's it, folks. You don't get another chance. Other religions will try to say you get another chance, but you have no other opportunity for salvation after you die. That's the entrance then, only then, into judgment if you're not covered by the blood of the Lamb. There's no purgatory. There's no place where you can sort of work out your salvation in some other way. There's no reincarnation where you can come back and give it another go, and boy, I wouldn't want to. You have one life and then death. Hebrews 9, 27. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So, Jesus had to become a man, that through death he might destroy death. I just love that. How did Jesus defeat death? Through death. (laughs) He fought fire with fire. I'll I'll fight death with death. Jesus had to experience death. Do you see this? He's experiencing everything man. Uh, Okay, if man's destined to die, then I've got to die. I've got to experience death. But he's got to have victory over that, folks. Did he do that? Yes, he came out the other side. He rose from the dead. 
If he experienced perfect obedience, he experienced perfect temptation and, and, and resisted that perfectly. If he suffered perfectly, if he had faith like we do, then he certainly must die. And he did. He conquered it by rising from the dead. I love when you have John, John's vision of the exalted, glorified God at the beginning of the, of the book of Revelation. Look at what it says in Revelation 1, 17 to 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. I love that Jesus said, Amen. <laughs> I am alive forevermore. Amen. Let it be, baby. I added the baby part. It's not in the Greek. But he says, I have the keys of Hades and death, which means Jesus owns death. Oh, you own me? You own me, do you? I own you. Jesus owns death. He conquered death. He conquered the devil, and then he released us from bondage. Look at verse 15. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. All their lifetime. That's been man's destiny all their lifetime. Death, death, death. And because of that, man has always feared death. Always feared death. Job used, it referred to it as the king of terrors, death. But we have been released, it says, from the fear of death. Christians shouldn't fear death. That's what we're told. In fact, if you're looking at our memory verse from this week, Romans 8.15, have you been looking at that? For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, because we were just told we were released from bondage. You haven't received this, the spirit of bondage to fear, but what? The spirit of adoption, which is the context of what we're talking about. We're all brethren. We're all of one. You received that. You're of the Father. You're no longer in bondage. You've been freed from that. You don't have to fear death. Why are Ukrainian missionaries and pastors remaining in a country that's under attack? They don't fear death. Death releases them into the presence of their Lord. We don't fear it. Death is swallowed up in victory, we're told. We had another memory verse earlier on, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and a love and a sound mind. So listen, fear is not part of the Christian walk. If you're wallowing in fear... There's something you're holding on to. And it's not the truth of Scripture. And maybe Satan wants you to believe that, that you haven't really been released from the bondage. Maybe it's sort of the Garden of Eden thing. Did God really say that? Does the Bible really say that, that you've been released from that? Yeah, it does. Oh, I don't know, but if I die, what if I don't? No, no, no. For the Christian believer, there is no what if. We know exactly if. Exactly. When I die, I'm in the presence of my Savior, so I don't mind looking into the eyes of death. When it takes me, then it's my time to go and be with my Savior. So Jesus, he's our sufferer, he's our sanctifier, and Satan conqueror. Incredible. That's why he's the captain of our salvation. It's personal. It's for the church. It's meant to encourage brothers. But he's also, one more point, our sympathizer. Look at verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels... But he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. This really sums up the entire argument. Uh, It's returning us to the overall theme of the whole letter, comforting the afflicted. Jesus did not come to save angels. He came to save men. It was man's destiny that uh, was in danger. It wasn't 
the destiny of angels. In fact, just to just show you this, we've looked at this verse before, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, you have uh, really Peter writing about the Old Testament prophets when they were writing about salvation and how this would happen. Look what it says, concerning this salvation. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come, they wrote about it, but they didn't understand what they were writing about. They spoke of the grace to come. They searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted what it, the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. They can't understand grace. They want to look into it because they have not been offered that. Holy angels are still in the presence of God, but fallen angels only will expect judgment. That is it. Salvation is not for angels. We're told here he came to give aid to the seed of Abraham. That is you and that is me. We're the seed of Abraham. We're all Abraham's offspring. Now look at verse 17. Therefore, in all these things, he had to be made like his brethren. He just had to be. That's the, he's getting down to this. He's have I made my point yet? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, there's a lot here, here. Uh, he, he's finishing up the argument. He's trying to wrap this up. Can't you see that there was no other way? Jesus had to be made like us. He had to be. How could we follow anybody else if they hadn't endured everything we endured? They have to endure. He had to be. But then he tags on a little bit more. If you're not fully convinced yet, let me just give you one more, that he is also a merciful and faithful high priest in the things that are pertaining to God, in the things that God is going to be concerned about. The priest was the mediator between God and men. The priest spoke to God on behalf of men. And so he says he had to become that. He had to become that person, but merciful and faithful in the things pertaining to God. How was he merciful then? Because he experienced everything that you and I experience. Let me Put an application here, make it a little more concrete. Men, when you're by your wife's side at that moment of childbirth, you are trying to commiserate with her. You're trying to identify with her. You want to do your best to sympathize and relate. But can I just tell you, you can't fully do that unless you're experiencing it. You can't really, can you? Like, oh, I know, baby, it hurts. And that's why they grab you by the low lip. Like, you don't know what hurts. <laughs> and you're right. Baby, you're right, and I'm going to go leave. <laughs> Jody never did that, by the way. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not saying she had C-sections. So. But you understand what I'm saying is that you have, to, you have to experience it with them. If you really want to sympathize with someone, you know what? You have a merciful high priest. He experienced everything that you did. He's not hard on you. He, he's merciful. So when we blow it, like Mark was alluding to when he was reading that, Gosh, I don't want to. I don't want to go to. I don't want to go to Christ. I don't want to ask him again to cleanse me for my sins. I just keep failing. He's a merciful one. He knows what you've been through, so you take it to him. Take it to him. It's okay. He's experienced everything that you have. Jesus gathered up all of our needs. What he did, and he he did something about all of them, didn't he? 
He's also a faithful high priest. He, he, he was faithful to us and our needs on earth. He, he went to that cross, which we needed. He, he could have turned away, but he went to that cross. But he's also continually faithful to us even now. He continually ministers to the Father on our behalf. In Romans 8, 34, we're told, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. We're told that at the beginning of Hebrews 1, that he's at the right hand of the Father. But he's not just sitting back and relaxing. He's still faithful. He's still working for you. He's still interceding for you. He's our our brother. It's incredible. So the writer is saying, listen, he had to be made like one of us, but he's also this wonderful, merciful, faithful high priest in the things that pertain to God. And then he says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, that's a big word, that propitiation word. It has to do with satisfying the wrath of God. That's what the word really is about. In the Old Testament, you had the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's also sort of the idea there, that it's a covering. Um, Sinners are under the wrath of God. When you read Romans 1, we're told that all mankind is under the wrath of God because of disobedience, because of falling short of righteousness. So, So we're all under that wrath of God. What Jesus' blood did then, it satisfied God's wrath or it covered that wrath. I've always defined propitiation as a wrath quencher. It quenched the wrath. It doesn't do away with it. It doesn't say, so we don't need your wrath. No, no, wrath had its full effect. Does that make sense? The propitiation uh, absorbed it. It took the wrath of God. He accepted it on behalf of us. And if you think about it, Jesus, who is God and, and from God, satisfy the wrath of God. I said it this way many a time before you. It was God himself that gave himself to save us from himself. That is it. We always say, oh, I was saved from my sins. You are, but you're really more saved from the penalty of sin, which is the wrath of God. So it's God himself who did that. Jesus propitiated his own wrath upon the cross. Has that blown your noodle yet? Incredible. He propitiated for the sins of the people. But he's also one more thing. For in that, verse, verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. He's also your helper in this time of need. He's your helper. Jesus suffered in every way. His suffering under temptation had to be so great because he resisted completely. We, we never can suffer to the, 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 you know, the degree that he does or did because we typically will succumb in some way, either thought or deed. But now we have a helper. He can aid us in those times of temptation because he knows exactly what we're up against. He went up against it himself. So is there really anyone else who can offer salvation to mankind? Anyone? I I, I challenge any other religion to say, well, our guy's pretty good. Let me just bring this candidate up here. There's no other perfect person. There's none. Let me just close with this. As we've been going through Hebrews, there's a lot of... um, nautical terms that have been coming up. I pointed some of them out last time about drifting and tying our, ourselves up. Uh, the early Christians' church history tells us that the Christians latched on to some of these terms and used them in their own circles. We certainly know by the fish and the sign of the fish that they use. But one of the terms that is used and will be used later in, in Hebrews is anchor. 
The anchor of the soul, we're told, hope is the anchor of the soul in Hebrews. And I just want to think about that term as we're looking at Jesus as our captain, which is another maybe nautical term. Maybe he's the captain of the ship of salvation, however you want to look at it. But when you look at Jesus as our sufferer, that he's perfectly suffered for you, when you're suffering, you can anchor yourself to that truth. When you, when you look at him as he's our sanctifier, that he's given us righteousness, that you are perfectly positioned, your position is holy. You can anchor yourself to that truth. You look at Jesus conquering Satan. We have victory over death and the devil. You don't need to fear death. Anchor yourself to that truth. And just come next to your sympathizer and remember that he mediates for us. He's a merciful, faithful high priest that he propitiated his own wrath on the cross. So we're no longer, folks, we're no longer under wrath. He read it earlier today, Mark did. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're under his love. We're not under wrath. And he's also our helper in times of temptation because he himself suffered through it. There's no other name under, under heaven by which we must be saved. And I will tell you, there's only one captain of our salvation. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for such a, a, a magnificent section of scripture here, Lord, that just shows us our perfect Savior. I don't know how you can read these words and walk away and thinking that there's salvation that could be found in someone else. There's some other way to heaven. There's, there's none. There's only one perfect captain of our salvation, and it is Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful truths of scripture that are given to us today. Lord, I pray as these words did to that church back then, that these words would encourage your people today. Lord, if that people have been suffering and wondering why they're suffering, that they would remember that you suffered first, that they would anchor themselves to those truths, Lord, through temptation or whatever else they're going through today, Lord, that they would draw close to you because you're a merciful, faithful high priest. You're You're not waving a finger at them. You're not waiting to pounce upon them. You're merciful, Lord. And as Mark read earlier, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for being a perfect Savior. Thank you for being the captain of our salvation, for for leading us into this wonderful truth today. Lord, I pray that this truth would be so encouraging to your people, Lord, that they would continue living their lives in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.